I live in the middle of the forest on a wooded lot. Right after we moved in, I noticed these indentations all over our yard. Well, at first, I didn't know what they were. I thought that some kind of rodent was burrowing down into the pine straw. Finally, it dawned on me that these were tracks. I knew some big critters were hiding nearby, but I'd never seen them. They were nocturnal. Then late one night, I met them. They were eating crab apples off a tree in my front yard. Evidently, the suburban sprawl had forced them out into the open. A family of deer were migrating back and forth across my yard. But I saw the tracks long before I saw the deer. Now, I could tell you that a unicorn lives in my backyard, or that Bigfoot lives in my backyard, or a herd of wild buffalo crisscross my property, but with no tracks, would you believe me? Of course not. Real animals leave tracks. Imaginary animals don't. And the same is true with faith. Real faith leaves behind tracks. It doesn't just exist in a person's imagination. It's not just a product of self-deception or wishful thinking. You can see its tracks. And this is the theme of the book of James. Faith leaves tracks. In fact, it leaves behind multiple tracks. Faith shows up in how we handle trials, temptation, money. It's more than intentions. It produces action. It affects how we treat folks less fortunate. Faith works. It affects how you talk and what you say. It doesn't conform to the world, but it seeks wisdom from above. It walks humbly and prays fervently. Faith connects with other believers in meaningful ways. Real faith shows up in real life. And if your faith doesn't leave tracks, perhaps it's a unicorn faith. It's a nice sentiment, wishful thinking, a figment of your imagination. But the faith you claim to have doesn't really exist if it doesn't leave tracks. It's a pretend faith. The book of James was written to expose a unicorn faith. If faith is real, you'll see its tracks all over your life. Well, chapter 1, James. But which James? You know, I can think of a lot of important folks named James. In fact, here is the top 10 most famous people named James. Here they are. Number 10, King James. You're reading out of his Bible this morning, King James. Number nine, James Taylor. Number eight, James Bond. Take your pick. Number seven, Jesse James. Number six, James Comey. Number five, James Earl Jones. Number four, the James Gang. There's a bunch of Jameses. Number three, who can leave out? LeBron James. Number two, the King of Soul. James Brown. And we have a tie for number one. Pastor James and Vernon James. There he is right there, Vernon James. But there are also a few Jameses in the Bible. Two of the 12 apostles were named James. The son of Alphaeus, 
and the son of Zebedee. Acts 12 tells us that Zebedee's son, who was also the apostle John's brother, was martyred by King Herod in 44 AD. Thus, most scholars believe that the author of the book of James was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 55 tells us that Mary had kids after Jesus, four boys and at least two girls, the oldest of which of the boys was named James. And this means that James had some initial doubts. During Jesus' earthly ministry, John 7, verse 5 tells us that even his brothers did not believe in him. I'm sure that James looked up to his big brother, Jesus. But imagine having to admit that your sibling was divine. That's tough to swallow. You know, there's a maxim. Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus and James, they swam together and played in the sandbox together. They were on the same little league team. They worked together in their dad's carpenter shop. Imagine growing up in Jesus' shadow. How could James stack up? Like a lot of kid brothers, he might have carried a chip on his shoulders. Yet we know what opened his eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there Paul tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, he made several special appearances. One visit was to his half-brother James. Jesus cared about his little brother. And when James realized that Jesus had conquered death, it all clicked for him. His Jesus was God. Instantly, he went from a doubting brother to a devoted believer. And James grew rapidly in his faith. Known as James the Just, he became a leader in the Jerusalem church. In Acts chapter 15, it's James that takes charge of the church council. He was a leader of extreme devotion. The church historian Eusebius writes, James would enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people, so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. They called James Old Camel Knees. In 62 AD, James died a martyr's death. The Jews took him to the highest point of the temple without a parachute. They ordered him to recant his faith before all the people. Instead, he preached boldly the gospel of Jesus. The Jews were so angry with him that they pushed him off the pinnacle of the temple. When he survived, he knelt down and prayed for them. The Jews beat him to death with clubs. When James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, there's some street cred behind his words. James's faith left deep tracks in the early church. Well, he introduces himself, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Recall James was the blood brother of our Lord on his mother's side. And if a family affiliation ever counted, this would be it. Think about it. James could have flaunted his status. He could have called himself the Savior's closest sibling. Or how about the kid brother of God? That's throwing your weight around. Instead, he refers to himself as a bondservant. After spending his whole life in Jesus' shadow, 
This is his one chance to name drop and take advantage of the relationship. But not James. He's only a servant. Like us, he's a sinner saved by grace. It was honor enough to be a bondservant or a love servant of his Lord. James now worshipped the brother he once resented. And he writes, To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Twice in the Old Testament, Israel was conquered by invading armies and scattered across foreign lands. Many Jews never returned home. Little Jewish enclaves sprang up all around the world. But as the gospel spread, it reached these dispersed communities. And many of the Jews believed in Jesus. James wanted to write them a letter of encouragement. You know, the fact that his letter is addressed exclusively to Israel's 12 tribes could mean that it was written prior to the gospel spreading among the Gentiles. Maybe as early as 45 A.D. This would make James one of the very first New Testament books. And its author cuts right to the chase. He speaks to the felt need of his audience. For no matter where they lived, the first believers were strangers in a strange land. They were blazing a new trail, cutting a path where there had been no path before. The Christian way of life was sure to stand out and draw fire. You can bet these early Christians suffered heavy trials for their faith in Jesus. And thus James begins, my brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And notice it's not if you fall into trials, it's when you fall into trials because all Christians face trials. I wish I could say that being a Christian immunizes you from hardship, but it doesn't. James mentions various trials. That's different types from different sources. You know, sometimes we suffer from our own mistakes. At other times, the suffering is unjust. On still other occasions, the specific reason for our trial is a mystery other than we live in a fallen world. And still at other times, we suffer for Jesus' sake. We suffer various trials. This is why you should never fixate on the trial's source or the trial's intensity, but on its purpose. The only way to count it all joy or be happy about a trial is to be absolutely locked in to its purpose, which is why he tells us, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials create patience or endurance. The Greek word is hupomone, to remain under. We would say stick it out, to persevere. Trials are resistance training. When our faith is pushed, it grows stronger. In time, it matures and reaches its full potential. See, real faith grows only under pressure. It's been said, no one sharpens a knife on a stick of butter. You need some friction. And God uses trials to sharpen our faith. For a time, seafood distributors who shipped codfish from New England to markets all across the country, they had a problem. In the beginning, they tried to ship frozen cod. But in the freezing process, it robbed the meat of its flavor. 
The answer was to ship the fish alive in a tank of seawater. Even then, though, the fish ended up tasting mushy and flavorless. That's when someone had an idea. The cod's natural enemy was the catfish. So a couple of catfish were placed into the tank. All the while the cod were on the road, they were being chased by the catfish. The vigilance it took to survive kept the cod meat fresh and delicious. And this is what trials do for our faith. God puts a catfish or two in our tank so our faith doesn't grow flabby. And it's interesting, notice verse 3. James tells us that the Christian knows this truth. Now how, how does a Christian intuitively know that his trials produce endurance? Well, you see, every Christian has been to the cross. And at the cross of Christ, God turned the worst trial into supreme triumph. The heart of our salvation teaches us that God works miracles through trials. It's His way. And then verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you're in the midst of a trial, ask God for wisdom not to waste that trial. We never want to waste trials. Ask Him to show you what you're supposed to learn by the trial. But let Him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Doubt is the spiritual flip-flop. How many times do we do that? I trust, but I don't. I trust, but I worry. James compares doubt to an ocean wave that rolls in and rolls out, that rises and falls. Real faith, though, is unaffected by our circumstances. See, to the doubter, James says, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Friends, doubt takes you out from under God's spout. Doubt forfeits God's blessings. It robs us of what God has for us. Verse 8 says of the doubter that he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You don't want to be a double-minded man. The phrase double-minded means facing two directions. In his allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he refers to the doubter as Mr. Facing Both Ways. He's a fence straddler. On Monday, he walks with God, but by Friday, he's sucked back into living for himself. He can't decide his direction, and he gives 100% to neither. Hey, we need to be all in. The Mr. Facing Both Ways is an unhappy saint, and he's a miserable sinner. Verse 9 tells us, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field... He will pass away. Spiritually speaking, before God, we're all on equal ground. The poor man and the rich man. Money has no effect on a person's spiritual status. He says, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Wealth and the pursuit of it is temporary. As Shakespeare penned, golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. 
Death is the great equalizer. We're all here today and gone tomorrow. There's more to life than just money. I have three azalea bushes in my yard that are special. They once blossomed on the grounds of Augusta National Golf Club. They were my son's Mother's Day gift to his mom. They bloom and they stand out for maybe two weeks every spring before they turn green like every other common bush in my yard. And so it is with the rich man. His glory fades quickly. Verse 12 tells us, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, in contrast to material wealth, spiritual crowns last forever. And a crown of life is awarded to believers who endure trials and temptation. You know, crowns on earth are worn by members of the ruling class. And that's also true spiritually. A crown is awarded to the believer who learns how to rule over his temptations. Resistance to temptation is also a track mark of faith. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Don't play the blame game. I've heard folks blame their sin on God. They talk like it's God's duty to reach down from heaven, grab them by the britches, and pull them out of the temptation. No. Resisting temptation is our choice. And our choices trigger a chain reaction. He says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. God doesn't cause our temptation. It starts when we're drawn away by our own sinful lusts. Martin Luther once referred to lustful thoughts as birds. He said, I can't keep them from flying over my head, but I can keep them from nesting in my hair. In other words, dwelling on a thought, savoring that evil thought, that's my choice. And when I choose to do so, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When an inner evil that's been nurtured by me meets an opportunity to be acted on in the real world, a full-blown sin results. In other words, when the egg of desire is fertilized by an opportunity for sin, then presto, you got a baby on your hands. And hiding that sin is as difficult as hiding a baby. And sin, James says, when it's full grown, brings forth death. If you never repent and turn from that outward evil, death results. Your life spirals downward. Full-blown sin turns into a full-grown lifestyle of wickedness. See, sin is a slippery slope that ends in destruction. You need to jot it down. Sin always results in unintended consequences. Sin always results in unintended consequences. One day you wake up in a place you never wanted to go. With people you never wanted to be with. Suffering consequences you never would have planned. Facing a future you never dreamed you'd have. Sin always results in unintended consequences. Verse 16 and 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. See, here's the key to overcoming temptation. You won't sin if you're convinced everything good and perfect comes from God. Realize Satan runs a second-hand shop. Why settle for hand-me-downs? God supplies the very best. Once an impulsive buyer froze his credit cards in a block of ice. Before he could make a purchase, he had to wait until the ice melted. It gave him time to think. Did he really want it? And this is what we need to do when we're tempted. We need to think. We need to remind ourselves that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James here is speaking of the new birth. By trusting in God's word, we become a new breed of people. A new crop of humanity never before seen. He's using a farming metaphor here. We're the first fruits of a spiritual harvest. God dwells in us now. And in the next few verses, he lists the tracks that prove God's presence. He says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Here's a track that God leaves behind. The person in whom God lives is swift to hear and slow to speak. After all, God created us with two ears and one mouth. We should listen twice as much as we talk. Swift to hear, slow to speak. Ever hear of the guy who spoke multiple languages? He was given the ultimate compliment. Someone said he knew how to stay silent in seven languages. In addition, God makes us slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Rarely are God's purposes advanced by your anger. Our wrath only bruises and hurts and further alienates. When we vent, we only make matters worse. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice this. It's the implanted word. It's that word that takes root in your mind, that infiltrates who you are. This is what saves your soul, the implanted word. For verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, a word gets implanted when we're more than an echo chamber. When we actually act on what we hear. D.L. Moody once said, every Bible should be bound with shoe leather. What he meant is that the Bible is for doing, not just for hearing. You know, some churches are like wine tasters. They're professional connoisseurs who sip the wine. They roll it around in their mouths, but they don't consume it. And that's how some people treat the Bible. Well, they'll analyze its presentation and they'll sample its taste, but they don't let it get deep down inside. They don't get intoxicated with the Word. They have a superficial appreciation of God's word, but they remain unaltered by what it truly teaches. James tells us 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Imagine yourself. You're glancing in a mirror after eating a hot dog, and you notice ketchup all around your mouth, and yet you do nothing about it. This is the hearer only. Are you always gaining information about the Bible while never acting on what you learn? You know, some of us know the Bible out to wazoo, but we've never let it clean us up. He says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Under the Mosaic law, people were bound to what it said, but they lacked the power to carry it out. Whereas the new covenant, the perfect law of liberty, that's ours in Christ, not only instructs us, but it empowers us with love. We can now be more than hearers. We can be doers as well. And the next two verses identify a few of the tracks that are left behind by real faith. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. In other words, faith that grabs hold of a heart will control a wagging tongue. We'll learn more about this later. And then verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If you want to track genuine faith, look for both compassion for the lonely and a desire for purity. You know, as far back as I can recall, until the day she died, Every Sunday afternoon, my dad would drive downtown to visit his invalid sister who lived in a nursing home. Dad would buy her a Coke, and he and my Aunt Anne would sit down and chit-chat. And during the week, Anne would call our house incessantly just to make sure that Dad was coming that Sunday. She was lonely and just wanted to talk. I'm ashamed to admit it now, but whenever I answered the phone and it was Ann, I got annoyed. Dad, though, always quoted James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Hey, we can talk about love all day long, but real faith leaves tracks. Chapter 2 begins. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, don't you play favorites. And he gives an example. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, oh, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Hey, on the flight to heaven, the cabin isn't divided into first class and coach. Jesus accepts me just as I am and right where I'm at, and that's how I need to accept others. 
Don't treat the rich or the hip or the beautiful any differently than the rest. The banker and the bag lady should get equal love. While in South Africa, Mohandas Gandhi became impressed with the teachings of Jesus. He actually thought of converting to Christianity. Wouldn't that have been great? He thought of it until he attended a church. There he saw the prejudice among the church members. And he came to the conclusion, if Christians have caste differences of their own, I might as well stay a Hindu. How sad for anyone in God's family to feel second class. It shouldn't be. Once a street person went to join a church, the pastor wasn't sure if the church wanted her type. He told her to give him a week to think it over, but the week went by and there was still no decision. He then said he needed another week, and on and on this went. Finally, in prayer one day, the Lord spoke to this woman. He said, my child, don't worry about joining that church. I've been trying for 20 years, and they won't let me in either. Verse 5 tells us, listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? You know, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said the Spirit was upon him to preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus knew that like the rich young ruler, the wealthy and well-to-do are often threatened by him. Folks who make money their idol, who assume earthly stuff can bring fulfillment, have no interest in making Jesus Lord. You know, you can put a small coin up to your eyeball, and believe it or not, that small coin can block out your view of a huge mountain. A small coin can block the view of a huge mountain. And this is the effect that money can have on our faith in God. It gets in the way. You know, most people dream of being rich, but spiritually speaking, excessive wealth can be a disadvantage. He says in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This royal law is the law that reigns supreme. It's the royal law. It's the law above all other laws. And what is it? I need to love my neighbor as myself. And such love should prohibit partiality. See, as a Christian, I can have a close circle of friends as long as it never becomes a closed circle of friends. He says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, break one of the 613 laws, and you're guilty of violating them all. The law required perfection. You had to bat a thousand. This is why we were set free from the Mosaic law. The odds of us obeying it were zero. None of us 
None of us are capable of perfection. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Instead of God expecting us to obey the Mosaic law, he's put his love in our hearts. And living out that love is the law that we're now called on to keep. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, one day we're going to stand before God. And if we want his judgment to be tempered with mercy then, well, let's show mercy now. And then verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In other words, is there such a thing as faith without tracks? What if a person claims faith, but his life shows no evidence of faith? Well, verse 15, James tells us what true saving faith looks like. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? In other words, your blessing was nothing but hollow words. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. As we've said, real faith will leave tracks. A legit faith leaves an imprint. I'm going to act on what I truly believe. Real faith, that is saving faith, that is the faith that gets you to heaven, is a commitment to the point of action. Charles Blondin was a famous acrobat. On June the 30th, 1859, he crossed Niagara Falls on a three-inch rope. He was 1,100 feet across the falls he had to travel, and he was 160 feet above the falls. Over that summer, Blondin did numerous stunts from the tightrope above Niagara Falls. One day, he did a backward somersault. He crossed blindfolded. He pushed a wheelbarrow across the rope. He walked it on stilts. He crossed at night. He even cooked an omelet on a portable stove halfway across the falls. But Charles Blondin's most amazing feat on the wire above Niagara Falls came in September, September the 15th of that same year, 18, or the next year, 1860. Before crossing that day, Charles Blondin asked the crowd, do you believe I can carry a man across the rope on my back? Everyone shouted, yes, we believe. That's when he asked for a volunteer. And of all the folks who claimed to believe, none would climb on Charles Blondin's back. Their lack of action betrayed their claim, of, claim to faith. Finally, one man stepped forward. The crowd didn't know it, but it was actually Blondin's manager, Harry Colcord. Harry had already tied his future to Blondin's daring, so why not go all out and trust him with his life? And this will be our reaction if we really trust Jesus. We'll climb on the Savior's back and we'll let him carry us. We'll tie every aspect of our lives to Jesus. 
Real faith, saving faith, faith that gets you to heaven isn't a sideline faith. It's an all-in faith. It acts and lives out what it believes. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, it's true, faith is faith and works are works. Don't turn faith into another work. You're made right with God, not by what you do, but by what Jesus did and your faith in his work. Salvation is by faith alone. But if you're really saved, faith will never be alone. For it will be accompanied by works and loving action. Now some folks point to a supposed conflict here between Paul and James. Especially later in verse 24 where James says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. That seems to contradict Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Martin Luther, who was fond of Ephesians and Paul, got upset with the book of James, so much so that he called it a right strawy epistle. He included it in the canon of Scripture, but he failed to put it on the same level as the rest of the New Testament. It was strawy to him, not golden. But the supposed conflict between Paul and James gets cleared up when we realize the vocation of each author. Paul was a theologian. He was a scholar, a lawyer. He was adept at breaking down abstract ideas. Paul deciphered steps and dealt with cause and effect, whereas James was a carpenter. He cared about end results. The steps and procedures you followed while building a chair didn't matter if you ended up with a handsome, sturdy piece of furniture. It was the end result that concerned James. And this is how these two men dealt with salvation. Paul untangled the individual threads of salvation. That faith alone is the cause, while fruits of the Spirit and good works are the results. Whereas James sees it as one giant cross stitch, all the threads together. He was so sure that faith produced works that he saw salvation as a package deal. If a life didn't show good works then it obviously didn't possess real faith. You could say Paul x-rayed the roots of faith, whereas James admired the fruits of faith. Paul says faith comes first and should never be confused with works, and that's true. But James says works follow faith. Works are the evidence of faith, and that's true as well. You put both viewpoints together and you see a complete picture. A faith that saves is a faith that works. Verse 19 tells us, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I mean, obviously, faith is more than an intellectual assent. Even the demons are orthodox in their doctrine. 
Just an agreement on the facts doesn't constitute real faith. Here's a side note. The demons tremble, we're told. The word means to bristle up. It's the idea of a hair-raising experience. A demon's faith in God doesn't save him. It frightens him. He believes in God's judgment. And it causes the hair on the back of his neck to stand up, knowing he's headed there. He says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And he gives us an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? You see, if Abraham had not obeyed God, how could he have said that he actually trusted him? You know, if you pray for rain in the morning, then leave the house without an umbrella. You didn't pray in faith. You're going to act on what you prayed. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled. Here he quotes Genesis 15 verse 6, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now now understand this, Abraham was declared right with God 22 years before he was told to take up Isaac as a sacrifice. Obviously, faith came first. And for 22 years, his faith stood alone. Only later was it confirmed by his obedience. He says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the context in which James is speaking, he's right. If faith inevitably produces good works, then you can't have real faith without works. Again, Paul is breaking down the Christian life into its different parts, whereas James sees it as a continuum. James isn't worried about where faith ends and works begin. He sees both as an unbroken chain. Certainly they do end and they do begin, but that's Paul's concern, not James's. In James's mind, we are justified by both faith and works. How can you separate the root from the fruit? That would be James's argument. Here's another example. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Here's the same idea, just a different example. Faith in God led Rahab to assist the Jews. She believed that God would win the victory and therefore she sided with the Jews and assisted them. Works follow real faith. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And notice here, we're given God's definition of when death occurs. It's when the spirit departs the body. You know, Modern medicine has its definition, when the heart stops beating or when the brain waves cease to function. But here's God's definition of death. When the spirit departs the body, once the spirit, the eternal part of a person vacates, then the body is an empty shell. It's dead. And likewise, a faith that has lost its life, its heart, its guts, its vigor, its zeal, its effort, a faith that's dead, a faith that's lost its energy is dead. 
Hey, real faith leaves tracks. Make sure yours isn't a unicorn faith, just a pretend imaginary faith. If you truly trust Jesus, you'll live like it. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to speak to our hearts as we meditate on these truths. Lord, I pray for us this morning, Lord, that that we would not only say we believe in Jesus, but that we would back up that faith with our works and with our loving actions and that we would live out what we believe. Lord, we know that real faith leaves tracks. And so, Lord, work in our hearts this morning. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Those of us who are going through trials this morning, help us to count it all joy, knowing that it's through these trials that you're sharpening and strengthening our faith. Work in our hearts today, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.